I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Prospect Podcast. My name is Samir Rahim and this week we're going to be talking to King's College philosophy lecturer Kate Kirkpatrick about the French feminist philosopher Simone de Beauvoir. First though, I'm joined here in the studio by Prospect's digital assistant Rebecca Liu to discuss the basics of 20th century French existentialism. Um, This is a subject close to your heart, I know that Rebecca, because you did your thesis on exactly this Um, topic. Um, How did you get interested in the subject? Um, Yes, great question, Samir. So I had no interest or conception of it coming into university at all. Um, And then in my dormitory, I found a very old book lying around this sort of incredibly decorative library um, by this philosopher called Maurice Merleau-Ponty. I kind of picked it up out of curiosity and read it and it it really gripped me because it was this sort of he was writing at a moment in France where you know the the second world war was over um they were kind of debating the merits of you know what France wanted to be as a nation um on the precipice of the cold war um and and I think it was it just seemed like such a kind of bold intellectual intervention in public life um, in a way that I really hadn't seen or been exposed to before. Um, So I kind of got into that and then started talking to my history professors who said, oh, if you you want to write your thesis on this, you'll have to engage with Sartre and Beauvoir um, and Camus. Um, And yeah, and then I kind of just got, got into that by completely on accident what about uh, what about Beauvoir then when did you first read her and what kind of um effect did she have on you yeah so I read her in the second in my second year of university um we had a course where you did read sort of the fundamental canonical text and philosophy um and I remember reading portions of the second sex for it I think at the time I had a bit of a blinkered view on it actually because I had a sense that you know I was I was lucky enough to to be in social environments by then maybe not so much before um that kind of accepted that any essential account of or any idea that women were essentially inferior or that there was something biological or 
you know, they were destined to be such um, was laughable and false. So I think at the time I was reading, I felt as though I was reading a historical document paving arguments and questions that had been resolved. Um, now, since entering more and more of the world, I'm I'm coming to learn that I was a bit naive with that. Um, I think I think I was reading another book recently by Dia Tolentino, who's a sort of millennial culture New Yorker writer, and she has one essay on the optimization of the modern woman. Um, and she's sort of making the point that, sure, we've displaced traditional patriarchy, but young women are still beholden to a different power structure of beauty, um, of professional success, of constant competition. Um, so yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm gradually questioning the sense to which young women like me are meaningfully empowered. So you think Beauvoir is then actually quite relevant now? You know, what, what, what was it about her ideas or the germs of her ideas that you feel that you can bring into um, modern feminism? Yeah, I so existentialism is sort of a philosophy of the self, though I think that can be misleading because that's often understood as, you know, self-indulgence or this the sort of solipsistic self that's very much just narcissism. Um, but her existentialism was very much, you know, what demands and responsibilities does the self have to others? Um, and the idea that your actions are the sum of, you know, who you are um, and the kind of person you want to be in the world. So I think there's a sense now with feminism today that there is such a rightful focus on external power um, as it sort of affects young women. But I, I don't think there is a sense of, a coherent sense of what, how individual actions can meaningfully challenge um, our prevailing norms. Of the same book that I was sort of reading mentions, you know, okay, you'll have these young women on Instagram talking about how much they hate being on Instagram and how, you know, it makes them sad they're doing it on Instagram and they'll continue to sort of build public lives and profiles on the platform. So yeah, I think there's a sense now that kind of individual resistance is impotent and difficult. Reading Beauvoir can hopefully recover that sense of, you know, what do your actions as an individual want to realize? It's interesting, isn't it? Because you talk about the sort of Instagram thing and um the idea of the self-creation or you create an image of yourself that you then put out into the world um presumably that's quite different from what Beauvoir was talking about in terms of creating yourself as a woman yes yes I I think she would say um or I think my interpretation of her would say that you know the sort of Instagram or social media self is sort of mediated through what might she, what she might call bad faith or a sense of you know untruthfulness, um, whereas her existentialism is very much about about finding yourself in a way that is truthful and feels, you know, it it feels like you're the master of your own life rather than enriching Mark Zuckerberg's already very vast empire. Thanks, Rebecca. Now, on to our main event, where um, Rebecca is talking to Kate Kirkpatrick about the philosophy of Simone de Beauvoir. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite 
of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello, you're listening to the Prospect Podcast, and I'm here with Kate Kirkpatrick. Kate, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, so you've previously written books on existentialism in general and the thoughts of Jean-Paul Sartre. What made you want to take on writing a biography of Simone de Beauvoir at this particular moment? Well, um, at this particular moment, uh, the situation is rather different than it was when I decided to write the biography. Um, I decided to write it before Me Too happened, for example. Um, and the reasons that led me to to conceive this project were that I had discovered in my research on Sartre's early philosophy um, that there were certain French philosophers who were well known in the 1930s and, uh, in fact, in the first quarter of the 20th century, whose work shaped uh, his thought. Um, and through that research, I became more interested in Simone de Beauvoir, partly because her student diaries from the 1920s became available in French in 2008. And I thought the story of their intellectual relationship has been really misunderstood on account of being reduced to this famous 20th century romance. Um, and we'll get to the lesser known side of Beauvoir and her work later. Um, but I first have to ask, she's most associated with one famous sentence she wrote in The Second Sex, which is, one is not born a woman, but becomes one. What did she mean by this? Well, that is a subject of so much contention that an entire book has been written about uh, about that sentence alone. And it's had different receptions in different countries, partly on account of its translation. Um, my reading is that she was doing something in that sentence that she did a lot in The Second Sex and in other works, where she took a famous line from French literature or a line that st stood out to her in the work of a philosopher, and she played with the words in it. So um, there is a philosopher of freedom and determinism called Alfred Fouillet, who wrote several books on the idea of freedom at the end of the 19th century, mm -hmm. and he wrote that one is not born but rather becomes free. Yeah. And Beauvoir thought that there were particular constraints uh, on women that prevented them from becoming free in an important sense. 
Um, so I tend to read it less as something that paved the way for the idea that gender is something we perform. Mm -hmm. And in the context of this, this conversation in French philosophy about what freedom is. And, and yes, so, so bringing, bringing us on to the question of freedom, I think sometimes it can be quite hard to read existential philosophy because it uses everyday language that, you know, might have different meanings elsewhere. Um, what did freedom mean for Beauvoir? So that's a really good question. And I think um, it's probably good to go into it by saying that a lot of the concepts that human beings think are really significant are contested concepts and freedom is one of them. Most people would say that they're committed to valuing freedom. Mm. Um, another one that I think is really important in Beauvoir's work is love. Um, it's a word th that people use in a lot of very confusing ways. Um, in the case of freedom, I think that uh, she distinguishes between some kind of abstract freedom that everybody possesses in virtue of being human and having the power to exercise that freedom in the world. So there's this long history in Western metaphysics of discussing freedom and autonomy. Um, you can trace that story to different thinkers in Western philosophy and their arguments about what they meant too. And in her case, uh, she, she thinks that to become an ethical self, uh, you need to value freedom, which is the human ability to m decide what to make of their circumstances. I'm, this, this is, this is um, simplifying for the sake yeah. of, uh, <laughs> the, the, of this course. conversation. You can um, read the book. <laughs> <laughs> the and, story. But she, the, what distinguishes her philosophy from Sartre's is that she doesn't think it's consistent to value your own freedom without valuing the freedoms of others. So ethics are, is built into the, her understanding of what it means to be a free human being. You alluded earlier to how the relationship between her and Sartre has been misinterpreted at the expense of a rigorous treatment of her philosophy. Um, can you expand on that? Yes, so uh, it's an irony of her life that in The Second Sex, she said that love is proposed to women as the supreme vocation. She mm -hmm. thought it was problematic that um, love didn't mean the same thing for men and women mm -hmm. in the context of 1949. For men, it was understood to be an important part of life, but mm. only part of life. And it was not seen to be a threat to love, to have other projects in your life alongside commitment to the uh, your intimate friends and family. For women, by contrast, she thought that love w was presented to women as the thing that gave their life justification. Mm. And that if they didn't love in the ways that were socially expected, usually by being someone's wife or perhaps mistress or mother, um, that they were seen to be failures. And so it's, I think, very um, ironic, but also shows the relevance, this, the, the continued relevance of her thought that uh, sh her intellectual achievements have been downplayed in the way that her life has been remembered in public. Mm. If you want to make women look less intellectual than they are, focus on their love lives yeah. and not what they thought and contributed to like the philosophical moment of the time. Yeah. And absolutely. And I think what your book does really well is to show how these personal experiences of hers bled into her philosophy um, in a way that, you know, you, you, you say for Kierkegaard and, and, and men who've done this, it's philosophy for, for her is writing about your personal life. Yes, there's a long-standing history of philosophical autobiography. Some people would say it starts with Augustine's Confessions. Some people would say, in the French tradition especially, that it becomes something new with Rousseau. And so I think when we acknowledge uh, that this exists, 
uh, and it's regarded as a legitimate philosophical work for men. Mm. Uh, it raises an interesting question of why her autobiography isn't considered more as a philosophical autobiography. And taking that on to her philosophy, so she wrote The Ethics of Ambiguity, um, which is, you know, kind of mediating between what you said, maybe Sartre's very or individual conception of freedom with a concern for actually when you have responsibilities to the people around you and to certain conditions of the world. So there is this interplay between the individual and the world that, you know, might be missed in very self-centric conceptions of freedom. Yes, and I think this is one of the charges that's often leveled against existentialism, in particularly the early forms of Sartrean existentialism, um, that it's very voluntarist and individualistic. And I think that Beauvoir's existentialism escapes those charges, and I think that it escapes those charges before um, The Ethics of Ambiguity, because in 1944 she published an, a book um, called Pyrrhus and Sinius, where she uh, dis- she disagrees with Sartre's understanding of freedom. And she says that um, if effectively no one becomes themselves alone and you have to recognize mm. the situatedness of each freedom because although we may all have um, this abstract metaphysical freedom, we don't all have the same situation or power to act to affect the world. Um, and so I think the, the answer actually comes a little earlier in her philosophy than in the ethics of ambiguity, but she develops it there. And it's mm. really interesting to look at that text as a bridge between um, Pyrrhus and Sinius and what she does in the second sex. Mm. Um, and pulling back, um, it's undeniable that both her and Sartre, as you write in the book, were objects of intense celebration, but also public condemnation. Um, and definitely one of the more controversial parts of her life has involved the love triangles and sometimes even quadrangles that she would get into with her students. Um, and, you know, often these would draw on Sartre himself. So you talk about this issue quite frankly in your book, which I really appreciate. How did you approach the subject which has generated such a firestorm? Um, and how did Beauvoir come across in the sort of archives and materials that you researched? Well, so I approached the subject with intense trepidation. <laughs> Um, and she does not come across, I mean, well, before I say anything on that, I don't think it's the biographer's job to judge her subject. I think it's the biographer's job to show what the evidence shows. Um, and I have qu- quoted from uh, both Beauvoir in those passages and from uh, the young women who left published records of uh, their encounters with mm-hmm. her, uh, because it's a very unsettling episode to speaking in my own voice as a person. Um, in fact, it's, it's a very unsettling few years in her life. But I try to approach it through her own philosophy of becoming, mm. because this is these episodes, however unsettling they are to us to read now, played a role in the reevaluation of her life uh, that happened in the early 1940s and that led her to write these ethics of um, existentialism but also the second sex so as you say you know she wasn't just the author of the second sex but was also a celebrated novelist with a prodigious output um and reading the book there was this sort of interplay between literature and philosophy 
she would be undermined for not being a philosopher. Um, you know, sometimes now people still say she put novels what Sartre originally thought of in philosophy. Um, but she herself had a kind of ambivalent attitude towards being known as a philosopher. Looking back now, it seems like she was very much one. Um, so why was this distinction between literature and philosophy so important at the time? So I don't think it's the case that at the time, the distinction between literature and philosophy had the significance for her that later generations of scholarship have assigned it. So there's a famous passage in one of her memoirs where she says that Sartre was the philosopher and I was the literary writer. And some people have read mm -hmm. this as though it indicates some uh, intellectual division of labor in the couple. Mm -hmm. And there are other texts that, that make that seem plausible. So for example, Sartre stopped writing mm -hmm. novels after Bo Beauvoir published The Mandarins because he thought she had done it so well. Um, but the relationship between literature and philosophy has a different uh, kind of nature depending on the culture that you're, you're talking about. So in the French context, literature and philosophy have not been seen as opposed uh, all the time. I mean, th this, this question goes back to Plato. He said that he wanted to ban poets from the Republic because mm. they maim the thought of those who hear them. Uh, and he thought that something about poetry uh, distracts us from thinking rationally. But in France, uh, there had been centuries of people writing in multiple literary forms and not doubting that they were philosophers. Um, so I think that sentence in her memoirs is overblown, and I, I or at least in, in her mm. public memory. And I think there are other cases where we find her referring to herself as a philosopher. Um, the film that was made about her life when she was alive by Jose Dayan uh, presents her as a philosopher in the opening credits, and she was content with that. Um, so I think this what this question actually gets at um, something that's lost in translation, which is that what mean mm. what means philosophy or what counts as philosophy or literature in one culture may not be considered in the same way in another. Yeah, there's a really interesting passage where you talk about, you know, her philosophy was one that kind of took the best parts of literature, which was very engaged with people's lives rather than you know a unifying system which as an undergraduate I, I found lots of philosophy courses a bit alienating on those grounds. Yeah I think a lot of people do I mean there's there this distinction is articulated in different ways and uh, some people I mean I particularly like Avishai Margalit who says that there are IE philosophers the people who say that is and then give you a definition or an argument um, and the people who say e.g. So, for example, mm. um, and and paint a picture uh, who, which helps you understand the nature of the problem and some of the possible approaches to it. And I think Beauvoir definitely was the latter. Um, and finally, to close, uh, in the last part of the book, you talk about Beauvoir's work on aging, which is, at least to me, not very well known compared to her other work. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how she approached the subject in the final years of her life. Yes, it's a wonderful book, and I think it's really underappreciated. And it, it is a place where you see some themes that she was already thinking about in the student diaries in the 1920s developed from the perspective of someone who's lived longer. Mm -hmm. uh, so she's still thinking about what it means to become a self. Um, and, she's think and she talks about the, the um, 
two dimensions of human selfhood. So she says there's each person recognizes that there's a view from within, um, which is the, the way you see the world and understand yourself, but there's also a view from without. And she thinks that um, aging for a lot of people is a kind of incarceration because they are not seen as fully human anymore. And she says, uh, there's a really lovely sentence that I, I like in that book where she says that the problem with children and the elderly is that they are not yet and no longer men. Mm-hmm. And so she's there's an element of kind of Marxist mm-hmm. critique in, in the book about not valuing people when they're not economically productive. Yeah. Um, but it's also a really moving meditation where she looks at um, descriptions of the experience of aging in literature and sociology. Um, and she says the kind of subordination of othering that women experience, which she treated in the second sex, is something that only part of humanity goes through. Mm-hmm. But the kind of subordination that the elderly often experience is something that awaits everyone who lives a long life. And so we should want to change it. It is, as you say, distinct from the second sex in many ways, but there is a sort of interrelation there in, in terms of, you know, Sartre was, was still picking up women in, in their 20s while she sort of, she felt the weight of her gender aging deeply as well, didn't she? Yes, it does d- disproportionately affect um, women and men in some respects. Um, and she discusses that in the book. And she discusses that some women find that liberating. They're grateful no longer to be made objects. Yeah. And some women miss it. Uh, so it's not, there's, it's, aging is not experienced in one way. Um, it's, it, and that's one of the great things about her is that she's very concerned for the particularity of individual human beings and their situations. Kate Kirkpatrick, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. And that's all for this week. Thanks very much for listening to our interview with uh, Kate Kirkpatrick. Her book, Becoming Beauvoir, is available now. Rebecca Liu was this week's producer. Join us again next week where we'll be talking to Lisa Opinionese about Susan Sontag. If you enjoyed the Prospect podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. It really does help. We'll see you next week. Goodbye.